Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk.
And normally at a wedding, the bride and groom don't remember a single thing the pastor says in the homily or much of the service, to be honest. And that was certainly true for me. I can't tell you a word the pastor said that night, but I vividly remember what he did. During his homily, he reached behind the pulpit and he pulled out a towel in a bowl. And he brought it before me and Rachel, and I thought he was about to make me kneel down to wash Rachel's feet in front of the entire congregation. Now, I would have been happy to do that, but it wasn't planned, and I just assumed Rachel's feet were already pretty clean. So I'm glad he just used the towel in a bowl as a prop to kind of explain how we were called to humble service and sacrificial love for one another. It's not unusual for us to remember what someone does much more than we remember what a person says, is it? Just think about your favorite teachers, coaches, supervisors, pastors from your life. People that speak lots of words over the course of the relationship. And as you think about what stands out most about that person who's had the biggest impact on you, it would not surprise me if you don't recall much of what they said at all. But you remember a whole lot of what they did. You remember how they served. You remember how they treated you, how they made you feel, maybe in a very challenging season in your life or a time of need. Well, in our passage this morning, the disciples are about to enter a very challenging season, to say the least. One where they'll lose the person that they have centered their life and hopes around for the past three years. Jesus is about to leave. In verse 3, it says that he is going back to the Father. In, in a matter of 24 to 48 hours, the disciples will be left to carry on the mission that Jesus started to continue the renewal and restoration project that God had and expand the message of his love and grace to the ends of the earth. It's going to be a daunting task for them. They'll likely feel ill-equipped. When Jesus leaves, they're going to be afraid. As they watch Jesus suffer and die on the cross in the coming days, their hope for the future would certainly waver at least. It's against this backdrop that Jesus decides to do something for his disciples. He puts words aside, and he does something. He doesn't just speak words of encouragement to them here. He practically serves them in a way that they would likely never forget, in a way that would fortify them against fear, in a way that would motivate their future ministry and show them what true service actually looks like. Do as I do, not as I teach, right? And just like the disciples needed this practical service from Jesus, we do too. We need to know that we follow a Savior who doesn't just speak words of life. He also serves us and cares for us in very practical ways. So in an effort to understand the practical service of Jesus and the difference it makes in your life, let's consider this passage under three quick headings this morning. First, let's consider Jesus' offer of humble service. Second, we'll consider our reception of that humble service. And third, we'll spend just a few minutes looking uh, at our call to humble service. So those are our three points, offer, reception, call. First, let's take a look at Jesus' offer. As always, context is key when we're looking at a passage of Scripture, what comes before, what comes after. And we've got to remember the context in which we see this practical service from Jesus. In just a few hours, Jesus knows that he will be captured by the religious leaders, he will be put on trial. He will be guilty of crimes that he didn't commit, or at least found guilty. He'll be tortured and beaten and crucified. He will die a slow, painful death by asphyxiation on the cross. He knows this. Jesus knows what the next 48 hours holds. A physically painful death and spiritual separation 
from his Father and the Holy Spirit as he endures justice against sin on the cross. As he's pulled apart from the very people he had known and loved for all eternity, God the Father and God the Spirit. And it's underneath this dark shadow of the cross that Jesus continues to love his disciples. As verse 1 says, when Jesus knew that his hour or his death had come, his hour to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now just stop here for a minute. Isn't that remarkable? Normally when I'm anxious, and I bet when you're anxious too, we stop serving. When I'm worried about the future, I grow impatient with those who I love. When I'm uncomfortable, I might get angry and circle the wagons and try to seek out ways to find comfort for myself. But Jesus continues to love and serve even in the midst of those very same feelings. He loves his disciples to the end. Verse 3 reveals why Jesus could do this. It shows us where his security comes from. Look at it in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. It was the security that Jesus had in God's love, in his Father, in the promise of future glory that allowed him to serve to the very end. And it's also the thing that can give us the security to serve when things don't go as planned. When times get tough, when comfort is snatched away. We can stay engaged in service to others because we're secure in the love of God. And we know that God promises to ultimately work all things out. Even suffering and death for our good and glory. That was Jesus' anger and it's ours too. It's this security that allowed Jesus to take the form of a servant. To give up his privileges, laying aside his honor so that he could show his disciples what humble service and love look like in real life. Now, you might know that foot washing was a task reserved in those days for the lowest of servants. Peers would never wash one another's feet, let alone a master washing an inferior's feet. And this is how one biblical and cultural scholar puts it. This is what he says. Most foot washing in the ancient world was a menial task. It involved washing off not just dust and mud, but also the remains of human excrement, which was tipped out of houses into the streets, and animal waste, which was left on the country roads and the town streets. The task of doing this as an act of hospitality to honor guests was therefore normally assigned to slaves or servants of low status, particularly females, so much so that foot washing was virtually synonymous with slavery. What makes the fourth gospel account so extraordinary is that there is no parallel in ancient literature for a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. Jesus' act therefore represents an assault on the usual notions of social hierarchy, a subversion of normal categories of honor and shame, it's not just an honored teacher who is performing the shameful act, but a divine figure with sovereignty over the universe who has taken on the role of the slave. Now that's amazing. John 13, we get a picture of the gospel. We see God who comes to wash the feet of his followers. God who takes on the form of a servant. In this passage, we see just how great the mercy and love of Jesus is. We, we see how low he's willing to stoop. In the fact that Jesus even washes the feet of his enemy. Did you notice that? Verse 11 says that Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him. Yet Jesus doesn't skip over Judas. He washes his feet right alongside the other disciples. Everyone receives the humble service and love of Christ. Friend and foe alike. 
In the love of Jesus, it softens some and it works to harden others. But Jesus gives his love to any and all, even those who are set against him, even his enemies. And that's significant because we all know how it's sometimes hardest to wash the feet of those you know best, isn't it? Those you know intimately. Think about how hard it can be to love your family. You've seen them at their worst. There's no pretenses put on anymore when you're around your family. Those you live with, those you know best. Think about how hard it can be to love and respect your parents. How easy it is for a close relationship to grow cold because we see each other's flaws so well. How easy it is to be apathetic of our emotions and our service to those that we're most familiar with. Now think about how well Jesus knows these disciples. Think about how well Jesus knows you. And he still wants to serve you. He still wants to love you sacrificially. It's amazing love that Jesus practically demonstrates for us through his life, death, and resurrection. But even though Jesus offers humble service and love, we see from our passage that it's not always a given that we want to receive that service and love. Having seen the offer of Jesus' humble service, let's now turn and consider our reception of Christ's humble service. Throughout the Gospel accounts, I believe we can see ourselves in Peter. I love Peter. He's a great character. We resonate with him, I think, as he responds to Jesus in this passage. Peter can't believe what's happening. The rabbi washing his students' feet. You see, Peter asked Jesus a question in verse 6. Look, Lord, do you wash my feet? And after Jesus continues to bend down and take Peter's feet in his wet hands, Peter exclaims in verse 8, you'll never wash my feet. What is happening with Peter here? What's the problem for him? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that Peter doesn't want this kind of Jesus, right? He's not expecting this. He even dislikes it. He protests against it. This isn't how Peter imagined relating with Jesus. This is not the path that Peter expected Jesus to take, the path of humility and service. Remember, it was likely that Peter thought he was about to ride the coattails of Jesus to honor and glory, to political victory and influence as Jesus rode into Jerusalem and and just vanquished the Romans. Peter thought he was going to be the right-hand man. Jesus washing feet is not what Peter had envisioned. In this passage, Peter's objecting to the way of the cross, you might say. He's objecting to the way of suffering, the way of humility that Jesus takes and invites his followers to take as well. Peter doesn't want to take this path. Peter is adamant against letting Jesus do this. In fact, in the original language, Peter says something like this, No, not will you ever wash my feet forever. Peter has an agenda for Jesus. And it doesn't include humility. It certainly doesn't include feet washing. It doesn't include suffering and death. And we can understand Peter in so many ways. How often do we wish Jesus would just adopt our agenda? Wouldn't it be easier if Jesus just got on board with what I wanted to see happen in this world instead of me having to get on board with his ways and his means? Wouldn't it be more enjoyable if Jesus baptized my methods that I use to accomplish purposes that I think are valuable? Wouldn't it be easier if we could count on Jesus to just take up our case and get on board with our desires? And if we're honest, we have to confess that we're so often off base with the intentions and purposes of Jesus. We don't like the idea of mourning over sin. We prefer fixing other people, don't we? We don't embrace meekness. We gravitate more towards exerting our desires on others. 
We don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Instead, we hunger and thirst for power and influence. We don't want to suffer for the sake of Jesus. We prefer the path of continual upward mobility. The characteristics of kindness and gentleness and patience, self-control, love, peace, goodness, faithfulness, these don't define our lives and our hearts as much as we like, do they? The fruit of the Spirit. Yet they're the very characteristics that come along as we follow the way of Jesus. That come as we allow him to wash our feet and be who he wants to be in our lives. In our passage, we see that Peter has no real idea what Jesus came to do and why. How could he? I mean, we see it 2,000 years after the fact with a lot more clarity now, don't we? And even seeing it with more clarity, knowing the end of the story, we still have a hard time embracing and walking the path of Jesus. After Peter objects, Jesus answers by saying that if you don't allow me to wash you, then you can have no part of me. Jesus says, if you reject this cleansing, you reject me. If you don't let me serve you, love you, cleanse you, then you have no place with me. If you don't think you need me to clean you, then you don't understand who I am. In other words, Jesus must wash us if we're going to belong to him. And with this explanation, notice what Peter says. He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In typical Peter fashion, he overreacts. Wash my whole body. Give me the works, Jesus. To which Jesus responds by pointing out the fact that Peter's already clean since he believes if the parts of his body that get it's the parts of his body that get continually dirty that are going to need regular cleansing. Even though Jesus has already washed Peter and us, we still need day by day cleansing on those parts of ourselves, our personalities, our bodies, which get dusty and dirty. But like Peter, we're called to believe that Jesus has already cleansed us, and we walk in newness of life because of that once and for all cleansing that Jesus brings. We still need daily cleansing, though. The moral of Peter's hesitancy, though, is that we have to let ourselves be loved by Jesus. That sounds so simple, but it's difficult. We have to let ourselves be served by him, be cleansed by him, but it can be hard on our pride. It can disappoint us because it means our expectations for what Jesus came to do are so often off base. What he's going to give me in life, how he's going to work in my family's life, what he's going to provide into the future. Jesus primarily came to cleanse people who were dirty, you and me. He came to serve the person who desperately needed to be served most, you and me. He came to lay down his privileges to find those who were lost without hope, you and me. We are called to let Jesus be our servant Lord. Give in. Recognize those parts of yourself that are dirty and dusty and be washed by Jesus. Be washed simply because Jesus wants to wash us and not because we think or feel we deserve to be washed. Jesus says, if I can't wash you, you can't have me. Now you might be wondering, how can we allow Jesus to wash our feet today? I mean, he's not sitting right here, is he? Um, he's no longer with us physically. But you might know that in the scriptures, the church of Christ, our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, are called the body of Jesus. And that's not just nice symbolism, that's reality. Jesus continues to humbly serve and love us today through one another, through his followers, through the church. And the question is, are you willing to be served by your brothers and sisters, by Jesus? What's keeping us from being served by Jesus? Why are we hesitant like Peter? Well, I think for many of us, like we mentioned, it's our pride. We don't think we're the ones who need to be served. We're pretty good. We should be serving others. For others of us, it's embarrassment. It 
feels a little shameful if we're open and honest and authentic. It feels shameful if we're the focus of other people's service. We feel like charity cases. For others, it's difficult with the vulnerability required uh, to allow others to actually see you, to serve you. We don't want people to see the dirty parts of our lives and relationships. We can also use our own service and busyness to distract ourselves from the service that we need from the body of Christ. We're so busy, we never stop to realize we need to be served. We're always serving, never allowing others to serve us. Like Peter, we're hesitant to the humble service of Jesus. But we'll never be able to wash the feet of others if we haven't had our feet washed first. And that's what Jesus wants us to see in the last part of this passage, our last point, when he calls us to follow along this humble, um, this humble path. Jesus could have chosen so many different ways to serve, right? If you think about it. He chooses, he chooses the lowest, though. Washing feet, like I said, would have been inconvenient in the way we just think. He had to bend over. He had to take off his outer garments and tie a towel around his waist. He was on his knees looking up at his disciples. If you just imagine this in your mind. It would have been unpleasant, demeaning, stinky. There are more convenient ways to serve, right? But Jesus chooses the most lowly and humble way to demonstrate his love for us. Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure and for ministry by showing them just how much he loves them. He doesn't prepare them by giving them a pep talk. He doesn't rally them with a win-one-for-the-gipper speech here. He doesn't build them up with self-motivation by telling them that they're good enough and smart enough and gifted enough. Then Jesus gets down on his knees and washes his disciples' feet. That's how he, he prepares them to set out for ministry. And they'll never forget it. And in the last part of the passage, Jesus says, What you just experienced me doing for you, go out and do it for others. So that they might know my love. So that they might taste my grace. So that they might experience my service through you, my body. Jesus speaks in verse 15 of giving his followers a pattern to copy. And the word he uses could mean, in the ancient world, a picture showing how something was to be done. A tracing that someone else could follow, filling in the details. It's a paint-by-number, so to speak. Now, we don't have basins at our front door, or our dining rooms, or our apartments. I'd be willing to bet that your feet generally stay pretty clean, at least you ladies. Foot washing was a cultural reality that we don't experience anymore. But we can show humble, sacrificial service to our neighbor. We can still do things which in the ancient world the slave would do. The things which in our world we always secretly hope someone else will do so we don't have to waste our time to demean ourselves. Our humble service towards others probably isn't going to be extravagant either. It'll be like most of our lives. It'll be mundane and pedestrian in many ways. One commentator says this, says that modern-day foot washing might look like this, good listening and conversation, good hospitality with visitors, guests, and callers, good attention to customers, clients, professors, colleagues in business and work, good presence with spouse and children and family, good being there at your service as a whole way of life. These and hundreds of other daily responsibilities and privileges are wonderfully pictured by Jesus' foot-washing gift. That's how we wash feet. It's mundane. It's not extravagant. It's relational. 
And we find the power and the motivation to wash others' feet only if we've had our feet washed by Jesus. In our passage, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he is prefiguring for them what he's about to do. He's going to lay down himself for them. In 24 hours, he will lay himself down for the world. He will be crucified. And in doing so, he will wash away the sins of all who call on him by faith. That is the heart of the gospel proclamation. That Jesus came to lay down his life so that you might be made clean. So that you might be forgiven. The way to happiness, the motivation for our service, the path to glory, which Peter didn't understand, is knowing what Jesus has done for you. Clinging only to that for our satisfaction and fulfillment. And then following our Lord's example and our action to others. That is where true happiness and glory is going to be found. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are so thankful for the way that you stoop so low to serve us. Lord, it's hard to comprehend. We don't appreciate it all the time. But we just pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see the humility and the self-sacrifice that you have shown to us so that we might move out to be more loving, humble, self-sacrificial people to our friends and neighbors. Thank you for the gift of this weekend. Thank you for the community that you're building. Thank you for the way that you're slowly but surely conforming us more to the image of Jesus. Watch over us as we travel down in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig'em.